Good morning. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so honored that you decided to be here with us today. Thank you for being here. I'm, uh, this series that we're talking about in the month of January, I really believe it can add some really great things of value into your life. So I'm, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, one of the things we do every week is we read a passage of scripture together, and then we look at what it means for our life. So I'd invite you to stand with me, if you would, as we read this morning's scripture. It's from uh, the letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament to the Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. I'm going to have you read a portion of it out loud in just a second, uh, but allow me to read this uh, out loud from the scriptures. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. And then here's the heart of this series. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I'll read this next part out aloud with me, would you? All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for reading that. Well, we're in a series, and uh, a series about do-overs, and it's about how when you receive at the heart level the grace of God, uh, that becomes a, the source of power for do-overs in life. Now, last week we talked about physical health. Um, some of you that were here last week may have said, man, this is my week. And you did great uh, Monday, and then you didn't do great Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. <laughs> and you're going, I don't know, I think I lost it. Hey, do-overs, right? You can start again. So I uh, want a little bit of accountability with that. Uh, but today, here's what I want to talk to you about. I hope brings some, some value into your life. I want to talk to you uh, about how you can be close to someone, again, that you used to be and you're not. Now, <clears throat> that I know raises some red flags for some of you. Because some of you are in the position of, uh, of hurt with regard to some specific relationship. And so when even someone suggests that you could maybe be close to that person again, you are either in a position of saying, I can't because of them, or I won't because I'm not about to put myself out there like that again. Or you're in the position of you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you think, I don't know what else to do. I don't even know how to begin being close. And so I hope today you get some, some insight about how you might begin to do that. Because the grace of God enables do-overs in life, including do-overs in your relationships. Now here's what I know. Our relationships are often the source of our greatest pain in life. Have you found that to be true? And you want do-overs? Now, how many of you had this experience? You've, you, you've uh, made some decision, maybe financially, or you made a decision about a job, or you made a decision about uh, doing something, even maybe around your house, and uh, you look back on it, and it wasn't the greatest decision, and you say this phrase. You say, if only I'd known then what I know now, right? right? You want a do-over. Well, there's a do-over available in terms of your relationships. One of my uh, cousins is a, a chaplain in the federal prison system. He's been a chaplain for, I think, 20 years or so. And one of his assignments, he was at uh, a facility in Colorado. It's called the Supermax. It's uh, absolute lockdown. The worst of the worst are there. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Uh, Leonard Peltier from about 30 years ago. Uh, all these well-known criminals that have been uh, prosecuted and, and given a sentence are sent to this facility. And my cousin, 
uh, was their chaplain for a little while. And all of them virtually are in uh, basically solitary confinement because of what they've done. Now, they get to interact with some other people. Um, but I asked him, I said, tell me, tell me how that works in the prison system. You know, when someone gets sent to solitary, gets sent to the hole, why do they do that? He said, well, they, they want to punish somebody for something that they did. Maybe they're, they're selling drugs inside the prison or they're fighting or causing violence or, or maybe they're at risk from someone else in the prison population. He said, but uh, we're starting to get away from that in the prison system. In fact, the wardens are starting to see that it's not good mentally for someone to be in solitary confinement for too long because they can literally lose their mind in solitary confinement. And so the prison system is starting to change how they see why they do that. Now, here, here's what happens with solitary confinement. They understand that it's a tool because it creates pain. And the pain comes from un unwanted isolation. Right? You know that. You know that's true. You know that's true in your relationships. The pain comes from being cut off from somebody. That's where a lot of the pain uh, in life happens. You, you know this. I would argue that it's a built-in feature of the human being that you want to connect with people. To not want to connect with people is actually unnatural. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, my, my family uh, was friends with another family in our church. Called, they were, their name was the Thompsons, and they lived kind of out in the country, and they had some land and some cattle and horses, and we would go out there. And Lee, who was one of my, just my favorite people ever growing up, uh, she said, hey, hey Scott, if you want to go explore, you can go explore. And they had all these, these woods behind their house. And she said, but now you need to know, if you go back into the woods and you see a house and you see a man back in the house in the woods, I don't want you to be scared. That, scared. That's Carl. So who's Carl? I said, well, Carl's a hermit. I said, well, what's a hermit? She said, a hermit is someone who's decided they don't want to be around people anymore. And so I wandered back in the woods. I don't remember being scared, but I remember coming up to this house. I looked in the windows, and there were newspapers stacked all the way up. There was no electricity, no water. Um, I met Carl a couple of times because Carl wanted nothing to do with people. Well, Carl's not you, right? I know you didn't choose to be a hermit because you're sitting here today, right? <laughs> That's how I know you're not a hermit. You don't want that. But being cut off... The, the rejection that comes from being cut off, that's what hurts us. Now, let me say a word to the guys that are in the room, because uh, we tend to not deal with this so well. Our reaction when someone cuts us off, uh, physically or literally, is, is usually anger. We don't really know what to do with what we feel, but our wives, our girlfriends, our moms know something that we don't, that it's okay to be hurt and actually be sad about it and not get mad. Did you know that? You're not actually more of a man when you power up and get angry. You're more of a man when you're honest about what's actually going on inside because most men don't have the ability to, to know what to do in that moment. And so what they do instead of being honest about who they are is they pose. And so I would just suggest to you as a guy uh, that maybe you would figure out how to be a man who just can understand what's going on on the inside and just name it. Just be honest about it. Now, there are a couple realities uh, about relationships I want to talk to you about, and then we're going to hear from a panel of people uh, who I think are really good at relationships and, and will give you some, a lot of insight into how to do this better. Uh, but there's two, two basic things I want to uh, communicate to you this morning before we hear this panel. Here's the first one. You need other people. Just say, say I need other people. Can you say that? I need other people. I know some of you are like, no, I don't, but I'll say it because you said it. <laughs> uh, you, you, you need other people. And I'm going to give you two reasons. One is, one is from the Bible, uh, but I also know some of you in here, you may not really actually believe what the Bible teaches or that it has a coherent message. And so I want to give you another example just from, just from observation. 
that I, I think you'll see the two of them line up, and you'll see the Bible actually has some insight into, into that, but two reasons why you need other people. Uh, for, let me start with the Bible. Um, the Bible says at the very beginning, the first book in the Bible is the book of Genesis. It's a record of, of humanity. It's, a, it's a, the record of where we went wrong. It's, a, it's a, a story about how God works with people even in their mess. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, when God creates mankind, this is what Genesis, this is how Genesis recorded. We'll, we'll put it on the screen. It says this. Uh, God says, let us, weird language, make mankind in our image in our likeness. Now, why us? What, what do you mean? God's us? God's a plural? What, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, in trying to grapple with this, and trying to grapple with the reality of God, that God's got to be bigger than we can conceive of God, or that's not God. If I can make up a God in my mind, that's not God, right? That's my limited, finite ability. So Christians have tried to grapple with this, and what does that mean? And, and as you read through the scriptures, you find out that God's referred to in different ways. Sometimes God's like a father, Sometimes it, God's spirit is moving. Sometimes when you see Jesus, the son of God comes into the world. So father, spirit, son, uh, the Christians have given that a name. We've, we've said that's God is a trinity, which a way to think about that is God is like a relationship. Uh, the early, one of the early leaders of the church, his name was Augustine, and what he said was uh, that God is, is the lover, the loved, and love. You can just chew on that all week. It's really powerful. God is all those things. He's a relationship that gets along really, really well. And this is our attempt at, at, at use language to describe the not-me-likeness of God, the, the otherness of God. Um, now, th the Bible says, so we're made in God's image. So because God's a relationship, that's why you always want to connect with people. That's why when you meet someone new and you find out that they moved up here from Kentucky, you go, oh yeah, I've got a cousin that lives in Kentucky. You always want to make these connections with people. Well, the Bible says it's because we're made in God's image. God's a relationship. So you're, you're made for relationships. That's why you do that. Now, let me give you an observation. Just, just, I think this just makes sense. Um, people are a lot like Legos. I got some, some bigger Legos. Um, people are a lot like Legos. They're, they're made to connect. You know how the parts of a Lego, right, they fit together, right? Now, if you don't have little kids, uh, I have little kids still, uh, you don't have the little teeny Legos, when you have the little teeny Legos and you put them together, they make this really satisfying click. Do you know what I'm talking about? They go click and you kind of go, oh, that feels nice. <laughs> you kind of like click things. It's this pleasing sensation when they click together. And I, I would say, just an observation, that you have that same pleasing sensation when you make a connection with another human being. You ever walked away with, from a conversation with somebody or, or gotten off the phone or you sent them a text or whatever? And you just feel like, wow, that was so great. Just this pleasing sensation kind of comes over you. And you feel like, oh, I, 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 I'm connected with another human being. Well, this is just an observation, but you see how it mirrors up with what the Bible says. We're made in God's image. We're made for that kind of connection. That's why we're made. That's why when relationships break, it hurts so bad. I would argue that losing, losing a relationship with someone is almost as painful as losing someone to death. Uh, when my wife and I dated, uh, we dated for five years, and in that five-year span of time, uh, we broke up a couple times. It wasn't my fault uh, either time. <laughs> She's not here to defend herself. She's in kids ministry today, so she can't even <laughs> back that up. Uh, but she broke up, but I, I remember, you, if you've broken up with somebody that you thought, like, this was the one, right? 
what am I going to do with my life? What's the meaning of life? I'm just like you wander through life and you barely make it through. I, I would just remember being in a daze, like what am I going to do with myself? Or if you've ever had a friendship that you thought would last forever and it disintegrated for some reason, and it just like leaves this ache and hole inside of your heart. I mean, we know that we just we know that we need other people. We intuitively get that you need you need other people. So I want you to walk away with that. I need other people. I was made by God to need other people. Now, the second thing is this, is that reconciliation, what Paul says in this passage to us, reconciliation is the doorway to meeting that need. If you're going to ever make the shift, make the shift to uh, having a do-over in your relationships, you have to learn how to be someone who uh, reconciles. You, you know what a doorway is, right? What's a doorway? When you go through the doorway, you experience whatever is on the other side of the door. And here you are over here in disconnection from a human being. If you want to be connected, you have, the doorway is called reconciliation. And you've got to walk through the doorway. And you've got to figure out how to walk through the doorway. Because Paul says, listen, this is what God's given us. God gave us what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. God was doing this with us. He was reconciling, not counting men's sins against, not counting women's sins against them. And God gave us the same thing and said, we can be people who reconcile things. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you reconcile, you change a foe into a friend. When you reconcile, you overcome the hurt so that you can be close again. That's what's happening when you reconcile. You restore a friendship. But here's the reality. Reconciliation is really hard. I don't know about you, but my natural reaction when someone hurts me is not to well, open my arms and go, come on, bring it back. Come on, just bring it back. Most of us, our normal reaction when someone hurts us is to pick a finger. Is, isn't that true? And I'm not just trying to be cavalier. Isn't, that's what we think. Oh, they're never going to do that to me again. It's incredibly hard. But here's what Paul says. You weren't made to be a hater like that. You were made instead, if, if the grace of God could sink into your heart, if you can understand the love that God has for you and how God is a reconciler, it doesn't hold things against you. If you could understand that, if it could sink down into your heart, then you would re understand that you were made to be someone who works towards reconciliation in any environment that you find. Any environment you find yourself in, you're a healer of the breach. You're, you're a minister of reconciliation. What does that mean? Well, it's we use the, the form of it when we say we administer something. You know, if you have a burn, and you take some ointment and you administer the ointment to where the hurt is. This is the picture Paul's giving us, that we're an administer of reconciliation. Wherever the breach is, wherever the pain is, we what we take is we reach into the toolkit that God gives us, and we take reconciliation, and we apply it right where the hurt is. <coughs> the pastor I had in college told this story, always stuck with me. He said there were these, I don't know if it was a true story, I don't know if it was a made-up story, but it makes the point. There were these two brothers, and they got at odds with each other, and they decided to stop talking. And they both inherited some land from their father. And uh, they lived, the land, though, was right next to each other, separated by a creek. And so one of the brothers, out of his anger and his willing, he, he said, I never want to be hurt by you again. He built a fence all the way down the property line. And so for years, they would not talk. They lived in the same town. They wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't talk about each other. They wouldn't go to family events together. Nothing. The breach was huge. Until one day, unbeknownst to either one of them, someone who was a carpenter came and in the middle of their property, knocked down a section of the fence and built a bridge over the creek. Well, sure enough, uh, one of the brothers went out one day and he saw the bridge. And the thought was, well, I didn't build the bridge. 
It came from my brother's property. He must have forgiven me. So maybe I could make up with him. And then another day, the other brother comes out and he sees the bridge. He thinks, my brother must have made up with me. And so they made up. And they said, well, you, you built, why did you do this? And they said, well, you built the bridge. Well, I thought you built the bridge. The point is that reconciliation is bridge building. When you're, when you're invited to be a minister of reconciliation, you're invited to be a bridge builder, not a fence putter upper. Now, we're, we're moving toward uh, inauguration of a controversial public figure. And I would suggest, as you're on Facebook this week, <laughs> that you decide to be a bridge builder and not a fence putter upper. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day when we honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King in our country. And the office of our, uh, our office as a church will be closed tomorrow simply to, because we say we want to be on the side of bridging the, bridging the divide between the races. And we want to be a church like heaven where every tribe and color and tongue and language, because we want to be bridge builders. You see that? What if you could do that in 2017? You had a do-over, and you, instead of being the, I'm like always the wall putter upper, you became the bridge builder. Well, I want you to meet some of my friends. Uh, they're going to come up right now, and uh, they're going to describe for you uh, their journey to be, uh, become a reconciler. And so they're going to come up here and sit down in these chairs, and we're going to have a little chat for a few minutes. You just welcome them up as they come. Give them a little bit of a... So these are all people that, uh, if you know them, um, you know that they're good at relationships, and they're good, they're not perfect, none of us are perfect, but they're good at it, and they're people who are reconcilers. So I wanted you to meet them, and I wanted you to just hear from them what they've, uh, what they've been through, how they got to where they are, and where they, they work for reconciliation. Um, down on the end, this is Missy Evans. Missy is married to Rich Evans, our family ministry pastor, and she's his better half. Uh, the elephant in the room is that she has a neck brace on. It's not because uh, Rich hurt her or she hurt Rich. Uh, they were on a trip, I think, three years ago, right? And Missy fell out of the raft, long story short, hit her head on the rock, and then just in the last several months found out that that created an injury in her spine. And so she's, you got, what, two more weeks? Two more weeks. You have to talk, talk in the mic because no one can Oh, sorry. <laughs> two more weeks with this on, and then I have to go for physical therapy, and then I'm good. And then I'm you're done. Good to go, yeah. That's good. Bionic woman now. Yeah, so. good. So, um, so, Missy, tell us, how did you get to the point in your life where you realized you wanted to be a person who was a bridge builder and not a person who kept people at a distance? What, what got you there in your life? Well, I think the art of reconciliation came to me early in life uh, because, not because of any spiritual deep thing, but because uh, I was basically trying to uh, protect myself, I suppose. I, I came from a large family, seven kids. <laughs> And in a house of nine people, there's a lot of opportunity for reconciliation. So I started off real young. Uh, I, my oldest sister is uh, Debbie, and she's nine years older than me. And then my closest sister is Susan, and she's two and a half years older than me. And three girls, four boys. And we had to actually break up a lot of fights in the house. Um, boys will be boys, but also girls fight too. So we were the reconcilers. I was one of I was the smallest in the house, but yet I was the one that stepped in the middle of the big guys to stop them. So... I think the fact that I was so little, they, it's, it kind of went, oh, you know, and they'd stop. So that was my reconciliation learning. Um, as we were growing up, Susan and I became real good buds. I mean, Debbie was nine years older than us, so she was, she was like the enforcer of mom and dad's rules. So she wasn't as close to us. So, so when we did stuff, we did stuff together. Susan and I were real tight. And as we 
grew um, middle school, I think, was when we realized that I was, I was more of the um, outgoing person. I was, I was the extrovert, and she was the introvert. So I, you know, we'd, we'd have a group of friends, and it would be, uh, Susan would always go with me, and we'd always do stuff together, and we, we had a lot of fun together. We, we actually fried some worms one time and fed them to my brother. But anyway, <laughs> we got in a little bit of trouble. But we were growing up, and then in high school, uh, I, was, uh, I started dating, and so mom wanted Susan to go with me, which I was okay with because we were still buds. But after a while, you know, I started leaving her behind and, and leaving her to her own, find her own friends. And uh, we loved each other. We, we, she would get my back all the time. Even when I, I did things wrong, she would get my back with my mom and dad. And um, so I, I graduated um, at 17 years old. I got married when I was 18, right out of, right out of high school, and had a baby, moved, moved up here. We lived down in Monticello. So. But we would visit home. Susan was still living at home, and she had a job, but she still couldn't afford to move out. Um, she would write me letters, and then we would go home an hour and a half away. It wasn't that far to go, and visit. So I would take my, my baby, and I would have Susan babysit while we went out with our friends. And she was always willing because she always wanted to get married and have children, and she just never really connected or never really was able to find someone uh, to marry. And uh, I got a call on, a, on um, Easter Sunday one, one day because uh, we didn't go down that weekend for Easter, and we found out uh, the next morning that she had died in a car accident. She was, she was 24, and I was 22 at the time. So I look back, and I look back at the way I've, I treated her, and I feel like um, I needed reconciliation with her, but I couldn't, I didn't have an opportunity. Mm. And um, it, was, it was really a moment of me searching for God, searching for purpose. That was my, I suppose, pivotal moment uh, mm. uh, of looking for God and trying to figure out what, uh, how I can reconcile with him and mm. what happened with her. I was scared. I was angry. Mm-hmm. And I think that was my moment of uh, looking for purpose. Sure. And Johnny, you had not the exact same thing happen, but you had a lot of loss happen in your life young. And that, how did you get to the place where you say, okay, I'm going to be a bridge builder? You know, yeah, I, I mean, we've all lost people. Uh, it's, it's the mortality rate's 100% the last time I checked. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, when I was young, three and four, I, I lost my father at three and <clears throat> my mother at four. And... Uh, that, that was difficult, you know, obviously. Uh, there was three of us, and uh, so that was, that was a tough time. And our aunt and uncle took us in, who I call mom and dad. And uh, so I spent a lot of my life uh, trying to reconcile that alone, uh, as we all do, things like that, tragedies in our lives. We try very hard to reconcile the, the how and the why and the, mm-hmm. how it affected me and all those kind of things. Um, and then fast forward <coughs> years later, um, uh, my aunt and uncle, my mom and dad divorced. And uh, so obviously that's another shock uh, to the system, you know. And uh, it was tough, but <laughs> I was thinking about this between services. One of the things that, that showed me so much more than I don't think I realized, more now than at the time even, was the fact, especially after I became a parent and a, and a husband, uh, that never did I see them fight. Never did I hear a crossword said between them. And never did either one of them ever say one bad thing about the other when they weren't around. Wow. In their entire lives. And it just it blew my mind. And, and uh, when they would see each other, they would hug every time. They would be supportive of each other of everything that went on and it, it was just it was amazing and you don't you don't see that 
So for me, that was a huge thing. Um, yeah. Fast forward, you know, I, I, 2007, uh, we all live with a, some form or another regret. And in 2007, uh, standing out here in the parking lot, I got a phone call. There's a bunch of us waiting for some teens to get back uh, from a uh, trip. And uh, they, my brother called and said my dad had died. He had an aneurysm and he, he died. And immediately, uh, uh, the regret factor is high right then. You know, I've, I've talked to some people about this. That it immediately, you're, the first thought is, I missed. I missed out. And so for me, uh, there, there was still a lot of that, and there will always be a part of that in my life. But uh, he knew. Mm. And my dad was uh, the master reconciler. He, he loved everyone. He hugged everyone he met. Everyone he met, the first thing he would say is, let me hug your neck. Mm. And so he was the master reconciler. And, and I think those, those kind of things uh, made it easier for me to, to see what reconciliation was all about uh, with, with my parents and and, and God, because, uh, you know, uh, quite often I have to yeah. reconcile with him every day. Yeah. So this is Barb, George, and her, her and her husband, Tim, lead a, uh, one of our missional communities that meets on Thursday nights at 630. And they focus on relationships called Relationship Matters. And they've done that for a, a whole bunch of years. But Barb, how did you get to the point where you realized, I want to be a person who's a bridge builder, I'm a, a reconciler? What, what was that journey for you? Um, it's... A long story, we've been married 40 years, but we started out as a 17-year-old bride and an 18-year-old groom who the bride loved church and Jesus. And I think I must have done missionary dating, I think is what they called it. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with a man who loved hanging out with his buddies and drinking from the bottle. And so I would wait on Saturday night for him to come home, and he would come home late Saturday night or Sunday morning, and I'd get up and get the kids and go to church. Mm -hmm. And I... We had a lot of years of really difficult marriage, and my mom just kept saying, if I go whining to her, she'd say, you picked him, go back home. You picked him, go back home. That's your husband, you know. Um, my mom married a drunk, and my mom was the most honorable woman with serving my dad in Christian love. And my dad come to know the Lord at 60 years old and died a happy man. But we had a lot of years of fighting and turmoil and living two different lifestyles in one household, Tim wasn't the kind of man that I could pressure to go to church, and Tim knew that God was much more of a force to reckon with than Barbara. Even with my Indian blood, he could trump. God had me down pat nailed up, and Tim was not going to play games with God. So he wouldn't go to church just to shut me up or to make me happy. But one day, Tim just said, you know, I think I'm going to go to church with you this morning. And I'm like, whoa, Okay. And once Tim started going to church, he just got right with the Lord, and it just became very evident. Hmm. And we began to work youth ministry for 20 years. We've seen how crippled the kids were because of the parents. And the bad behavior of parents always lands on the kids. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. Hmm. We leave fingerprints that we don't get to remove. So we really, um, we left youth ministry. We moved out to Porter County, and we needed a new church, and we came here, and they needed somebody who would work with adults, and God evidently thought we might be teachable, and we might be able to be teachers who could teach, and we truly believe that people are healed to be healers, so we agreed to a 10-week session, and 14 years later, we are <laughs> still teaching. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, now all of you, people routinely come to each of you, and uh, ask you for help 
with their relationship. They get themselves in a mess, and they don't know what to do, and so they routinely come to each of you. Let's start with the, the, the things that people do that don't work. What are some things that you see that people do over and over again that makes it worse? Now, we all, as human beings, think we have a, a case of the uniques. We think that we're, our problem is the unique problem. No one else has our, and we're really all the same. We really struggle with the same things. And so you see the same things over and over again, right? So let's start with you, Missy. What are some things you see people do that messes things up? Well, I think uh, being in youth ministry for 20 years also, I, um, I have seen and had conversations with parents as well as teens. And actually, uh, part of it, and with both sides, is uh, the one thing that really reacts, reacting to anger and reacting to your emotions. Basically, your emotions dictating what you do next in the situation, whatever the situation is. So you, what you mean by that is you, you feel something and you act on it right then. Exactly. So is it wrong to have the emotion? Oh, absolutely not. We were created to have emotions, yeah. and, and, and there may be some very many times that it, you rightfully so have that anger or that hurt, or a lot of times parents, when they get hurt, they turn it to anger. It turns to anger. That's just so the way it works. So I feel it, I respond. Exactly. My response is based on what I feel. Based on what I feel, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's like one of the worst things be between that and, and going and telling somebody else. And that goes with teenagers as well as adults. We tend to go and tell someone else rather than go and try and work it out with the person that we have an issue with, whether it be our parent or our spouse or our sibling. Because, you know, a lot of the teenagers are going through so many relationships. They have teacher relationships, friend relationships, siblings, parents, and there's, you know, and obviously the boyfriend-girlfriend scenario, which is all a whole other story. But, but it's relationships all are handled, cannot, can't handle be th the same way. If you don't react on the, on the emotion, you can handle it so much better. Sure. And then the other thing is going and telling somebody else. That's, that doesn't solve anything and actually makes many things makes worse. Makes the problems, yeah. drive the wedge, right? Johnny, what about you? What do you see? Um, for me, one of the big things I hear so, 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 so much, and, uh, and, I, and I struggle with it, we all struggle with it one way or another, is, is the scorecard. The scorecard is so dangerous. Um, when somebody just decides that, you know, I've done this so many times and you have done it zero. So I'm winning and you're losing and so I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do that for you anymore because you don't do it for me. So it's, it's really about me. Just and it's, it can be the reverse too, right? It can, it be, can be the reverse. Hey, you've done this to me seven yes, times. Yes, And yeah. here I am being an angel, mm. you know, to you. And so, and we make them pay. We make huh. them pay. Sometimes the scorecards are not actually said out loud. It's just felt inside, right. held inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sometimes silence is keeping score. And we, yeah. uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You guys, <laughs> you know. The silence is, yeah. silence is deadly sometimes. You know right. that. But the score is, is huge. It's, yeah. It's huge. yeah. And Barb, you do a lot of marriages, a lot of families. What do you see that, that people do that just messes things up? I think a lot of things... They do, they, they think it's a good thing, but it's not. Like, like parenting by guilt. We think that this is a very entitled society, but we are the parents who've entitled the children to feel entitled. Sometimes mm -hmm. because we work too many hours, or we're not home enough, or we're in a blended family, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Something made us feel guilty, and the child knows how to push on the guilt. So hide your guilt buns, confess your sin, be over it, move forward. And mm -hmm. when it comes to what Missy said about timeouts, Tim and I have a timeout thing. Um, hot-blooded Indian, cool, calm, collected Quaker. Yeah. Okay, um, so we have this thing in our house, and we try to teach it in relationships. Um, 
that you have to have a code word. And I use Pepsi for service. That didn't sound so good. So, Danny, I'm going to use yours. When something's said and you need to both be quiet because somebody's getting hot, use the word wow. Find a word you can use where when you say it, you both agree that when that word is dropped, everybody shuts up. Okay, so Find your corner. So for those of us who don't know about the timeout thing, can you walk us through how that, what, what do you say a timeout? So you're a couple and you want to, you're, you're, it's hot and the fire's burning mm -hmm. bright. And how do you get out of that? How do you not be emotional like Missy was saying? And so you're saying you have a timeout. You say so, timeout. Okay. Or you say wow. So you, that come means that, you come up with that code word. You find the code word and you use it. But you have Run. to agree. On, you have to agree. You have to <laughs> You have to, but you have to agree on the word, right? <laughs> you have to agree on the word. And you have to realize that here's the deal. Once something's said, it doesn't get taken back. You can apologize, but uh, it's out there. It's taught yeah. in the Old Testament. Once the words go forth, they're there. Yeah. So if you'll take and agree to have the time out. So time out, wow, pigs flying, whatever you want to say. So if there's, if there's a fight later today, that would not be the time to say, hey, this is the word. You're going to, you got to do it when you're not mad. You, you, well, even if, if it's in the heat of the moment, I mean, it's, you practice. Let me tell you, it's practice. It don't get right the first time. Yeah. First couple times, somebody's going to usually walk past the stop sign. And it's, I hate to say this, the women, but we tend to not be able to shut up quickly. So we have to practice. I know, seriously. <laughs> Lori, it might be Johnny in your house, but we drop the word. And when, when, whenever the word wow comes up, we know be quiet. And that means both of us need to be quiet for a minute. Uh -huh. And then one of us, which is usually the one that's not so angry, because the angry one can't do this, usually the less angered person will say, how much time do you need before we can come back and discuss this? Now, you understand this didn't happen the first time. Way to work at it. But you set up 30 minutes, 90 minutes. You know what? Tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. Nothing said, past 24 hours. Okay. No, yeah, I was going to say. You said nothing past 24 hours. And then you come back to the table, and whoever is the most angry has to go first. And mm. usually once you've processed it, you realize you weren't angry about what was going on right then. You were still harboring something else, and it just tripped the trigger, and it opened the trap door, and everything came puddling in. So this way you can handle one small issue, and once you do that, you feel a little good yeah. about your relationship, then you can handle the next one. And sometimes you can handle two or three issues at the table that you guys didn't even know were going on because they were pressed down. Yeah. And we didn't talk secret. about this in the first service, but do, do you think that most people think of relationships, especially dating marriage relationships, as magic? We magically fell in love and everything's great, but it really, and so magically everything ought to work better, but really, relationships are a skill, right? We, we teach in class that you have a toolbox, and we try every week to give you a different tip or a tool to put in the box because, yeah. listen, when your emotions go out of whack, you're crazy, okay? Yeah. Everyone in this yeah. room has been crazy and could have been committed because our emotions do sure. something to us. So it's urgent that we learn because, you know what, as our kids watch us behave better, they behave better. Yeah. When they learn how we handle stress and conflict, they can handle stress and conflict. Yeah. You're the first teachers to your children, not the church. We are supposed to back up what you teach. So getting, getting rid of that magical thinking, like it ought to just, we're soulmates and it'll all work out, is really a waste of time. It's about building the skills that make it work. And the timeout is a skill. So Missy, you, um, you've done a lot, and I know you have two parts, but the, the dealing with parents and teenagers especially, and there are some parents in here who want to kill their teenagers. So um, 
what would you say, what are the things you've seen parents do that work and the things that don't work in terms of reconciling? Well, I, I can tell you, and I'm sure you all know this. If and, you have, and let me interrupt you, because you have three grown kids, yes. and they like you. And they do like me now, now. Right, right. <laughs> but there That's is, powerful. That's powerful. There's, there's, yeah. a, there's a, I'm sure it's probably documented somewhere, there's a period of time in their life that there's nothing you can say, they will not listen to you, they will not hear you, and you are stupid. Okay, no, no offense, but it's, you don't know anything. So it is, it is imperative that you get other adults around them that think the same way you do, are like-minded, and, and they will actually look out for their best interest, which is why I, I was in youth ministry for so long. I started when my kids were in it, and I can't tell you how, how much that helped me with the reconciliation with my sister. Long story, but, but can, honestly. Can I interrupt you? So, so yeah. the student ministry, getting a, uh, your teenager involved in student ministry is, is for the student to make connections with other students, but it's just as much for them to make connections with other adults. Just as much, yes, absolutely. Right. Well, yes, getting involved in a, a group with like-minded and then having the adults to pour into their lives. Yeah. Because those moments when they come to me and say, my mom's crazy, you don't know, she's just crazy, and my dad is so mean, and he's going to grow, you know, all that stuff that happens out of, a lot of times out of your emotions, your, the, the things that are, you're battling about through the teenage years, I can sit back and say, look, okay, let's, let's pull back, let's take a time out, let's think about this, let's, let's, let's think about what mom and dad are going through, what's mom going through, what's dad going through, and honestly, the worst case scenario is in a divorce situation because a lot of times we forget uh, as adults, the kids can hear us, they've got enough to deal with, they don't need to hear our garbage, it's not their fault that we got a divorce. I'm, I'm a divorced mom and I, I did not want my kids to hear the things that were going on between their, their dad and I when it was bad, especially, I mean, I, fortunately I, was, I, I came to reconciliation with their father he passed away last year, and I praise God that I had an opportunity to, to reconcile with him um, emotionally. It was just, it's just, it was just rough for, the, for a couple of years. But in a divorce situation, you cannot, you cannot let the kids get involved in your stuff because it's not their fault. It's not, mm. it's not their stuff. So, uh, going back to um, taking the time out, you know, any situation, I can tell you that when I was raising my kids, I would ground Megan. Megan probably had the worst. Mike will tell you he had the worst, but Megan got grounded a lot because she was, she was mischievous. That's a good word. And uh, she'll remind me to this day that I grounded her from her eighth grade dance and she lost a boyfriend because of it. Oh, my gosh. She's married. She has three children, and I can't wait until they get to be teenagers. <laughs> but I was, I was firm. I had to be firm. And, and, and again, um, don't use your children to get to your ex. It's, it's damaging. It's from now and their future and their future, their future marriage. Yeah. So just in the interest of time, what's, yeah. if you could offer to everyone in the room one thing that you would hope they would take away from this today, what would you say? I'm an overachiever. I've got two things. First thing, uh, and, and like Missy said, be careful of what you say. Uh, be careful of the words that come out because it's like the bag of feathers on the mountain. You shake the feathers out. You come back the next day and try to put them back, they're gone. You don't get it back. Uh, and especially in a divorce situation, you got kids in the middle. You're, you're saying things. Be careful what you throw because somebody's going to be in the way of that. Mm -hmm. You know, even in friendships, be careful what you say to this friend. That friend might be, the, you know, you never know how it goes through and who gets hit. Uh, that is huge. Uh, one of the, another big one, and again, between services, I, I thought a lot about this, is forgiveness. Forgiveness mm -hmm. is so important in every relationship 
Sometimes forgetfulness on my part is huge because I forget that I was mad at somebody. I literally just slips my mind. Oh, yeah, I was mad at him last year, you know. And, but uh, forgiveness is huge. Uh, I, I gave my daughter, uh, you know, uh, all the parenting stuff that I've said or we've said, we've blown it. That's why we know. At one point or another, we've blown it as parents. And so s- being able to say, I'm sorry, I just did it two days ago. Two days ago, I had to go to my daughter and apologize to her. And forgiveness is huge because we aren't, we're just kids that grew up. Parents aren't superhuman. We used mm-hmm. to think they were until we grow up and see their people mm-hmm. like us. And so forgiveness is huge because, you know, I gave my daughter permission early. I said, listen, all the things you see that we do that you think stink, that you just think we're poor at, I gave you permission not to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But the things that you know that we do well or you feel like are the right things to do and you know we do them, Please do it. Please continue it. Mm, uh, so, but in that, there has to be grace. There has to be forgiveness because we're still just messed up people. Yeah, good. Barb. And he just stepped all over mine. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of the things I say is our dad is love, so we must be loving. And love is an uh, action word. It's not that emotion of, oh, I love him. It is, I love him, and it, even when he doesn't do what I ask him to do and when they don't do it correctly. And to be agents of grace, to learn that if we don't give grace, how can the world ever learn what that is? And grace is all about forgiveness. And who are we not to forgive? Mm, good. Missy. Um, I would say, um, again, take the, taking the time out, uh, make sure that you think about what your child's going through. And the teenagers and the children think about what that other person's going through. And when your spouse is in a situation where you don't understand what's going on, there's something going on behind the emotion. Mm-hmm. And um, my final word would be Proverbs 15.1 is something I've hung on to for many, many years. And it's uh, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a kind word turns away wrath. Mm-hmm. And that will never fail you. Great. Can we say thank you to them? Uh, I want to invite you to stand. We always leave you with a blessing. And so I want to invite you to stand. And you'll see people around you holding out their hands. That's their way of saying they'd like to receive that. If you're comfortable with that, great. If you're not, that's okay too. Uh, Receive this blessing. And then if you'd like to pray with someone down front afterwards, you're welcome to do that. May you know the love of God that reconciled you to him when there was a big fence. May you know that you're sent now to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody. Tell them you love them. See ya.